We exist to see God glorified and churches multiplied by declaring and displaying the gospel. spend some time today looking at the, the background of 2 Corinthians, looking at the context and what's going on in this book to help us set the stage for the next 20-ish weeks that we're going to be in this book. And then we're going to look specifically at the two verses that we just read. So let's pray. Jesus, you are very kind to us. What a joy to get together like this. Spirit, I feel spoiled by your grace to us in this moment, in this place. And there are people who have gathered in this room who have crawled into this place today, tired and beat down and broken and sick and afraid and shame-filled. Spirit, I pray that today you would encourage and uplift and convict and save. May we walk out of here. Though our troubles may still be present, may we walk out of here with our troubles toting on our back, but with a lighter step because of the grace that comes in Christ. May our boast truly be in you. Preach a better sermon than I have prepared and speak to the hearts of these people today. We pray these things in your name. Amen. Why 2 Corinthians? We've chosen this book. Why, why 2 Corinthians? Why not 1 Corinthians? That's a great question. It would make sense to preach the first one before the second one. Why 2 Corinthians? You may even wonder if I've read the book of 2 Corinthians. Josh, if you've read it, why would you pick this one? It is so random. Right? It almost feels as if Paul is a junior hire with ADHD as he writes this, jumping from one topic to the next topic with no rhyme or reason at times. It's a great question. It's a great insight. I must admit you make a good argument. It's a bit staggering at times, a bit strange to choose this book in this moment perhaps, but, but man, it's a treasure. Paul absolutely appears to be scatterbrained here, Here's the topics that we will cover as we go through this, as, as, as you just journey through the book of 2 Corinthians. Paul deals, he offers us a greeting that we're looking at today. He talks about how God comforts us in our suffering and our despair. He gives a defense of his travel plans. This is why I travel the way that I travel, which sounds so random. Call, he calls us to forgive others. He tells us there's triumph and weakness and humility. He tells us to have confidence in the gospel to have assurance that our broken and sin-ridden sin -ridden bodies remind us of the treasure of the gospel. He points us to heaven, reminding us that our hope is not in this world. He comes back around and calls us to reconciliation, very similarly to the address to forgive before. He addresses our physical bodies as temples. He addresses the topic of marriage and calls us to obedience in marriage for God's glory. He addresses a previous letter that he sent, which we do not have, but we know is the harsh letter or the severe letter. He gives encouragement to give generously of our money to support the church. He commends Titus to them, 
And then he addresses generous giving again to support the church and calls us to give joyfully. He defends his ministry against accusations of duplicity and behalf and belief that he is weak and poor as a leader. He addresses false apostles who are teaching false doctrine and who are trying to take credit for Paul's ministry. Ironically, he condemns their boasting in themselves by boasting of his own suffering in Christ. He talks about a thorn in his flesh, which he cannot beat, what will not go away. He rebukes the church for not supporting his ministry and expresses his loving concern for them. He gives a final warning, and then he says goodbye. And most of the transitions from topic to topic are no transition at all. Just one topic after another topic. If one of our pastoral residents preached the way that Paul wrote this at our preaching symposium, we would give them a two out of five on structure at best. And yet this letter, church, is real life. It's real ministry. This letter is the life of your pastors week in and week out. We get an email from a member addicted to pornography and asking for help, and this encourages us. That email encourages us. They're reaching out for help. On the same day, we hear of someone who hit financial troubles and needs help, and we scramble to recruit help for them and pray that God would provide more resources for our church to help more people like them. We receive an encouraging text from a guest who's been visiting and loves our church and says that they want to plug in with what God is doing here. And in the same moment, we receive an email from a member who's frustrated and upset with decisions that leaders made or something that happened and they're leaving the church. We get the joy of walking through premarital with a couple who's pursuing Jesus with their relationship. And we also get a couple who's sitting on our couch who says they'd rather die than spend another night together. We see great progress and reconciliation between two members who have been hurt by each other. We see others refuse to have hard conversations and shrink away in their pride and their shame. Someone shares Jesus and sees a friend saved. While another member quotes a preacher on Facebook, but the quote isn't theologically correct. And still another responds to them with harshness or condemnation for their post. Someone weeps in our office over their inability to have children while someone else tells us they simply don't know how to care for all of their children. Our community groups, one community group is thriving with confession, while another community group is breaking apart because of response to confession. Consumerism makes us, makes some of us greedy and most of us enslaved. And we as a people, we as your pastors, we find ourselves daily fighting off the comparison game. This letter that Paul writes is real life, it's real ministry because that's what real ministry is. Dealing with this issue and then this issue and then that issue and then the next issue. Some good, some bad, some praise, some all-consuming. Back and forth it goes. Welcome to the church. The church at Corinth was messy. It was broken, it was unhealthy, it was divided, there was sin there. And at the same time, the church at Corinth was holy. 
Christ's bride, his chosen people. How those two descriptions of the same people can simultaneously coexist, I do not know, except for the fact that it's a miracle of the gospel. It's a miracle of the gospel. One of the reasons we're preaching through this book is because I believe it'll help us as a people to address real life issues such as the ones Paul is addressing here. It'll help us as a people to do ministry with each other as Paul calls us to here. So today I want us to understand the background, the context, the understanding of of this to help us as we dive into this book to understand why Paul's writing what he's writing. And then we'll look at the text that we read this morning. The city of Corinth was ancient, with ancient Corinth, rivaled Athens as a powerful Greek city-state. In 146 BC, Rome came and sacked the city and, and burned it to the ground, enslaving or killing all of its citizens. A hundred years later, in 44 BC, Julius Caesar had the city rebuilt and renamed it Corinth. And he populated the city with freed slaves, freedmen. He populated the city with the poor, with immigrants. One historian said, what inhabitants, O luckless city, hast thou received? And in place of whom, alas, for the great calamity of Greece, wholly abandoned to such a crowd of scoundrelly slaves. Slaves, freed, inhabiting this city. A hundred years later, Paul comes. The city's sacked, everyone's sold into slavery and killed. A hundred years later, the city's rebuilt, reestablished, populated with free slaves. And a hundred years later, Paul comes into the city. We looked at this last week in Acts chapter 18. The new Corinth is more wealthy even than ancient Corinth. The freed slaves have turned into self-made upper class. In the Roman culture, class and status was hereditary. It was very difficult to move from one status to the next. But in Corinth, there was no birthright given. They were all slaves with the ability to make for themselves whatever they wanted as long as they would work hard and have a little bit of luck. It is a city of self-made richness. One historian said of this, that no deity is held in such reverence among us as wealth. Poverty was looked at as a disgrace, evil, unfortunate, and even the religion was geared around this wealth. What mattered was the service of the gods. What mattered was the service of the gods to the people, not the people to the gods. They built even the religion around getting more Savage Cell's self-appreciation became the goal and self-glorification the reward. Self-appreciation became the goal and self-glorification became the reward. So Corinth was ruled by the gods of wealth and status. And Corinth was ruled by the gods of beauty and of performance. Public speakers prided themselves on their ability to entertain those who listened. They gave up truth for entertainment, doctrine for pleasure, even within their religious systems. Theology took a back seat to the entertainment of the people. 
we will see this play out as the people begin to be upset with Paul for apparently not being a very strong orator. People wanted to see expressions of divine power because they could use such power as currency for status. So people gave themselves to religious systems, not because they wanted to obey or follow that God, but so that God could give them some divine power so that they could use that power or that divine expression as currency for their own status. I'm part of that. I'm a part of that group. I'm a part of that movement. I'm a part of that faith. They placed a premium as well on personal appearance and performance. Corinth was, quote, a city of beautiful people. Lucian said, a handsome lad is implored not to let his beauty go to waste in solitude, but to go to Corinth where he will be appreciated and find a bride who is young and beautiful. It's the city where the pretty people go to find other pretty people so that they might make more pretty people. It's Corinth. In Corinth, they held the Isthmian Games second highest status of any type of competitive games next to the Olympian games. Every other year they would compete. The best athletes in the world would come and compete with their naked bodies competing, priding and boasting of themselves and their power and their strength and their beauty. These weren't the only games in Corinth. It's said that 300 days out of the year there were games taking place. A city rich with performance rich with entertainment, rich with beauty, self-appreciation becoming the goal and self-glorification the reward. How do you gain this reward of self-glorification? If self-appreciation is the goal and self-glorification is the reward, then how do you gain the reward of self-glorification? Well, you gain the reward of self-glorification from the platform of boasting. You gain your glory by boasting of what you have, of your power, of your strength, of your wealth. It wasn't enough to just be wealthy. You had to let everyone know that you were wealthy. Plutarch said, most people think that to be deprived of the chance to display wealth is to be deprived of the wealth itself. To be deprived of the chance to display it is to be deprived of having it all together. Lucian again said, the man who lives in a fine house gets no good of it, if not, or, and nor of his ivory or gold either, unless someone admires it all. What good is it to have a nice home and a nice, a nice stuff if no one else is envious of you? They counted their money in public. They built statues of themselves, monuments of themselves, with great carvings about themselves, flaunting their money and their success however they could. They took boasting so far that one said, boasting itself became an activity worthy of honor while humility was scorned. Boasting became the greatest honor. Who could boast the most and the best? You get the reward. You rise to the highest status. A man by the name of Atticus had an inscription written to his wife that used phrases such as great, preeminent, above all others, more famous than all, the flower of Achaia, and one having attained the peak of every kind of excellence. 
It's a really wonderful words to write to your wife, except that he didn't write them about her, but about himself. I'm sure that letter was received wonderfully. We see in 2 Corinthians that even the church was full of boasting. So much so that they dismayed that Paul would not boast himself. They, they had hatred, frustration with Paul because he wouldn't boast. They found false apostles to be truer and Paul to be weaker because the false ones would boast in themselves and Paul would not. This is the culture to which Paul writes this letter. Nothing that they, there's nothing that they despise more than weakness. So Paul writes a letter to them that in essence addresses weakness and says, in all actuality, church, weakness is where we find our strength. I mean, just think about the things that he writes here, the topics that Paul addresses. Suffering and despair equals weakness. Not being in complete control of your travel equals weakness. I agree with him there. I feel very weak when my travel plans go bad. Forgiving others equals weakness. Weakness being triumph. Paul would, the Corinthians would say that, may it never be. Confidence in the gospel equals not being confident in yourself. It's weakness. Their broken and sin-ridden bodies didn't remind them of glory, but rather reminded them of their weakness. Their hope was not in heaven, but in their wealth and their status. Hope placed in anything but their wealth and their status was weakness. Reconciliation with another was weakness. Body, their, their body was not a temple to God, but a monument to self, to boast and flaunt for recognition. Any other body would be weakness. Marriage was not for God's glory, but for boasting of your wealth, status, and beauty. Giving money was weakness. Getting money was strength. But receiving money from someone because you have need is weakness. Go earn it yourself. Weak public speaking equals weakness. Grace equals weakness. Gentleness equals weakness. False teachers taking credit for Paul's work equals strength because they took what they wanted while Paul's humility and boasting in Christ equaled weakness. And the thorn in his flesh, which he could not beat, was a weakness. This is the culture that Paul writes to. And I have been so amazed, church, at how similar this culture is to ours. We live in America, the land of the free, the American dream, where there is no inherent class. Everyone can become whatever they want to become with a little bit of hard work. From whatever background you come from, it doesn't matter. You can rise above and you can create the best life that you can create yourself. And then we step back and we boast about it. Now, I don't know that we're quite as flamboyant with our boasting as we see the Corinthian church but I don't know that we're as far as we think we are either. Few of us are building statues to ourselves, partly because we're like, there's a lot better things I could spend my money on and who looks at statues? But we create images for ourselves that are not true. 
write things about ourselves that are not honest. We do this through avenues like Instagram and Facebook, full of public boasts of how great we are. I'm great, preeminent, above all others, more famous than all, the flower of my social group, and I have attained the peak of every kind of excellence. Look at me. We boast of our wealth by showing what we have, what we do, where we are. We boast of our status by showing who we are with, by tagging who we know. We boast of our strength, our power, our intelligence by quoting what others don't understand, arguing what we believe to be true, and convincing others that we are right. We boast of our beauty by carefully editing each photo we post to make it look the best that it can, removing all blemishes, and at times even changing the entire, the entire culture of the video or the of the photo. We boast. Self-appreciation has become our goal, and self-glorification our reward. We receive the glorification from little pink hearts and blue thumbs ups as well as a number of other ways in life. It is our avenue of public boasting. And so when we read this book over the next 20 weeks and we study at church, I want us to remember this culture that he's writing to. A group of self-made people full of prideful boasting in themselves, resistant to any form of weakness and led away from the hope in Jesus and loyalty to Paul because they both appear weak. Jesus and Paul appear weak to this people because their boast is in their strength. And may we remember that we're not that much removed from them. So 2 Corinthians chapter one, verses one and two, Paul says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God and Timothy, our brother, to the church of God that is at Corinth, with all the saints who are with the whole of Achaia. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Three points I want us to take away from these two verses, three observations. First, Paul defends his apostleship from the very first sentence, even the very third word. He defends his apostleship from the very first sentence. The false apostles, the false teachers have come into the church and they've convinced the church that Paul is not a true apostle. Right? They've convinced the church of Corinth that Paul isn't a true apostle because Paul doesn't hold to the strengths that they hold to. He's not a great orator and he's not, um, he's not overly impressive in his appearance. Some even say he was very lowly and even difficult to look at. At times they say, they actually accuse him of duplicity. They say, man, you're so strong and bold in writing to us, but then when you come in person, you're weak and timid and humble. And they've come in and they've said, look at all of these things. He's not a true apostle. Don't listen to him. And because of what the church values in their boasting, they've begun to look at Paul as not being a true apostle. And he defends himself from the very first sentence. And it matters for us because he will defend himself throughout the book, over and over again, defending his apostleship. But he's not doing so, church, because he's trying to hold to some self-made status that he has acquired. He's not the Corinthians. He did not rise himself to the status of apostle and now fight and boast about being an apostle to hold that status. This is not a power move by Paul. 
I knew of a pastor who every time someone argued with him or disagreed with him, he would just say, you need to do it because of those six letters before my name, P-A-S-T-O-R. This isn't Paul just flexing his apostleship to go, you just got to listen to me because I'm an apostle and you're not. Paul is defending his apostleship because Paul believes that by bringing his apostleship into question, it also brings the gospel which he teaches into question. And so Paul's defense of his apostleship is a defense of his gospel. Paul saw Jesus and Jesus called him. And the gospel that Paul preaches is a gospel that Jesus gave him. And it was God's will, he says, that he became an apostle. And we begin to see here Paul's understanding of the Trinity to some degree. We get to see some working out of God the Trinity, our triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit. Paul says that God willed that he would be an apostle. And we see here that the Son accomplished it. He's an apostle of Christ because Christ came and called him because of the will of God the Father that he be one. So he's not telling them, hey, look, look what I have done. I, I've risen in status. I, I, I have done enough. I have, I have been good enough. I am smart enough. I've accomplished enough that I got to earn the status of apostle. Listen to me. It's quite the opposite. He doesn't boast in himself at all. But in his very introduction, he goes, listen, guys, I'm an apostle because Christ Jesus called me to be so and God the Father willed it to be so. This is not of my own strength. It's God's desire, God's strength. I'm an apostle in my weakness. And he defends his apostleship so that the gospel that he teaches will have authority. Secondly, Paul encourages the church in their true identity from the very beginning. I want you to listen very closely, church. Paul encourages the church in their true identity from the very beginning. He does so in two ways. First, he calls them the church of God. Second half of verse one, to the church of God that is at Corinth. The church of God. It's important for Paul and it's important for the Corinthians to remember this. The church at Corinth doesn't belong to Paul. They're not his possession, nor do they belong to themselves. They're not their own possession, but they belong to God. They're God's possession, God's church. And it's important for us to remember, church. It's important for your pastors to remember, and it's important for you to remember. You are not our church. You do not belong to the pastors. Nor are you your church. This is not your church. It's God's church, which you happen to be a part of. It's his possession. You are his possession, right? And this matters for us. Because you are his possession, you are his treasure. He cares for you, he values you, he wants you, he watches after you, he preserves you. I cannot tell you the number of times that I worry and I stress and I, I, I just reach moments of anxiety over you. Perhaps over your sin, perhaps over your brokenness, perhaps over decisions that are being made, perhaps over is our church even going to make it, which on a day like today, you look around and you go, of course it's going to make it. You'll be amazed how I go home this afternoon and by tomorrow morning, I'm sure that we're not gonna be here next Sunday. After all, we don't have coffee today. <laughs> it's the beginning of the end. 
And my wife has to sit down next to me and get in my face with love and gentleness and sternness and remind me that you're God's church. You're God's church. And God will not let his church perish. He may let this expression of his church end. There'll be a day when the 501c3 of Emmaus no longer exists. But the church, God's people, we are his possession. He values and cherishes us and loves us and cares for us. You belong to him, Christian. He holds you in his hand. And he says, this is mine. And he provides for what you need. And he cares for you where you need cared for. And he loves you where you need love. And he loves and cares and provides for you even in the places you don't realize you need love and care and provision. You're his. You're his to be spent how he wants to spend you. You're his to be used for his glory. You're his. It's a beautiful thing. It's free. It's life-giving. It's hopeful. You are the church of God's possession. Secondly, within this, Paul encourages the church in their true identity, and he says this. Paul calls them saints to the church of God that is at Corinth with all the saints who are in the hall of Achaia. Now, we could just read past the word saints. We could read past this and just just write it off as a synonym for Christian and just go, let's just move beyond this, and, and, and we just miss it. But church, I want us to revel in this for a moment. I want you to wonder in this phrase for a moment. This church at Corinth is jacked up. They're broken, they're divided, they're confused, they're confrontational, they're flighty, they're rebellious. And yet Paul does not open up his letter like this. Paul, an apostle, let me repeat myself, an apostle of Jesus by the will of God to the church of God, you foolish, sinful, stupid people. That is not how he opens his letter. It might be how he feels, I don't know, at moments. What's wrong with you? But that's not how he opens his letter. He is about to unload a whole 16 chapters of things that need to be addressed. And yet, he doesn't begin there. He begins by encouraging them in their true identity. You are saints, holy, set apart, different. You may be acting all these ways, but let me remind you what you really are. You're this. So I'm gonna address a few things. I'm gonna deal with some things but I'm gonna do it out of this status. This is who you are, so this is who we need to be. Paul is patiently, lovingly, pastorally exhorting them to their true identity. You may be wondering, but you have been found. You may be divisive, but you have been grafted in. You may feel alone, but you have been adopted. You may be doubting, but you're assured of salvation. You may be greedy, 
but you have been given much. You may be prideful, but our God looks on you with pride. You may think you are self-sufficient, but the all-sufficient one has given you all that you need. Saints, church, broken, prideful, wondering, divided and greedy people that we are. Would we hear ourselves called saints? Would we know that we have been set apart, though we are rebellious and doubtful and shame-ridden? May we know that we have been set apart. If you have placed your faith in the perfect life, the bloody death, and the victorious resurrection of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, then the Heavenly Father looks at you, Christian, and he calls you saint. So just take a moment. Take a moment and breathe that in. Saint. Thirdly, verse two, grace to you and peace from our God, from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. He gives them two blessings, grace and peace. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. The grace being the salvation that we have received. The peace being the assurance that comes from that. My grace is this forgiveness and peace is the, the shalom, the rest of conscience, the rest of worry, the rest of toil and of work and the rest of fear that you enjoy because of the grace that you have received. And we get insight here into, again, his view of the Trinity as he says, it comes from God the Father and Jesus Christ. Again, the Father willed it and the Son accomplished it. Grace has been given to you, if it has been given to you, not because of your own merit or your own ability, but because God the Father willed you to have grace and God the Son accomplished the giving of your grace through his death on the cross. And Paul doesn't address here the Spirit but we know that the Spirit is the one who seals it, who guarantees it. Later in chapter 1, which we'll look at in a week or two, chapter 1, verses 20 through 22, it says God promises, all of God's promises find their yes in Jesus, and the Spirit is the guarantee of these promises. And one of the promises that finds their yes in Jesus is this grace and this peace. And the Spirit is the guarantee of this grace and this peace. You could say the Spirit is the deliverer and the keeper of the peace, which we have because of the grace which we have received by the will of the Father and the work of the Son. The Spirit delivers the peace and guarantees the peace. He keeps the peace. Because of God's will, because of what Christ has done, the Spirit brings us and guarantees us peace, church. Peace with God. We've sung about this in almost every song this morning. Not in boasting in of ourselves, but in boasting of Christ. That whatever this world may bring, we rest with a peace of heart because of what God has willed, the Son has accomplished, and the Spirit has given. Grace and peace. Take a moment, church, 
and breathe that in. Breathe in the grace and let a big breath out of peace. Is yours that God has given you through the work of Christ. This is how Paul begins his letter. I'm an apostle. The gospel that I am sharing with you comes from Christ himself. And he has said that you are saints, forgiven and holy, not because of anything that you could boast about, but because of the will of God, the work of the Son, and the seal of the Spirit. So rest in this church and greetings. If you're an unbeliever today and you've never placed your faith in Christ, then my plea to you is to look to this God who wills salvation and the Son who has purchased salvation and the Spirit who will guarantee salvation and to cry out in faith and say, I have strived, I have worked hard, I have tried to make myself something by myself with my own ability to boast of my own, my own strength and I have nothing. I come to you empty, weak, and in faith, save me. The scriptures promise us that he will. Be saved today. Christians, Rest in your true identity. Rest in the grace and peace that has been given to you. Let's pray. Jesus, mm, thank you for your word. Thank you for the truth within it. Spirit, I pray that you would apply it to our hearts, that you would save, that you would convict, and that you would encourage. Practice you're guaranteeing and sealing and keeping of our peace this morning through your word. I pray this in your beautiful name, the name of our triune God. Amen. Church, we end our time in the scriptures every week by taking communion. And so if you're here and you're a follower of Jesus, if you've placed your faith in Jesus, as we just talked about, we invite you to take with us. In a moment, you'll be invited to stand, to exit to your right, to come down, to take from one of our three tables. If you have a gluten allergy, there's option for you at the third table, and then head back to your seat. We'll sing one more song, and we'll be dismissed. If you have not placed your faith in Jesus, if you are not a Christian, you, you haven't done what we just talked about, a looking to Jesus for your salvation, then we'd invite you not to come take. Right? Instead, we invite you to stay in your seat today, and the invitation to you is one, to take Jesus. Believe and place your faith in him. Church, come and take. Thank you for watching this Amaze KC podcast. More information about Amaze KC can be found available online at www.amazekc.com.